Welcome back to the FreightWaves Net Zero Carbon Summit. I'm John Kingston, the editor-at-large at FreightWaves. In order to have net carbon zero, you have to have a price of carbon. You ultimately need that value. No matter how virtuous a company might be, at some point, it is going to do a cost-benefit analysis on the steps it needs to take to reduce its emissions of CO2. And to do that, you need that price. The carbon market is probably too far along to be called fledgling, but it is a market whose most important years probably still lie in the future. Here to talk about how carbon markets work and where they are today at the FreightWaves Summit is Lisa Street. Lisa is the Director of Global Carbon Pricing at Opus. Full disclosure, Lisa is a former colleague of mine who started out as a market reporter covering refined petroleum products. Now she brings her analytical skills to Opus, which is part of IH Market. And from her perch as the director, she watches the developments of the markets created by the burning of some of those products that she covered all those years ago. So, Lisa, welcome to the FreightWaves Net Zero Carbon Summit. Thank you, John. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you to FreightWaves for having me. And I'm uh, pleased to be talking to you about uh, Net Zero at your uh, Carbon Summit. So let's establish some very basic things because most of our audience probably is not aware of them. There is a price of carbon. It is quoted per ton, but after that, it gets a little bit complicated. So here's the question I want to start with. Why would I buy a carbon credit and how do I get in position to be able to sell one? Yeah, great question, John. And you're you're right. Uh, the standard unit of carbon is one metric ton of carbon, and there is a vast range of pricing across multiple pro, uh, carbon programs. But there's two reasons that you would be uh, purchasing a carbon credit. One, if you are a regulated entity under a compliance program, such as California's cap and trade program, or if you are a member state in the regional greenhouse gas initiative on the east coast or if you're participating in the european carbon market these would all require you to take a look at your emissions to see if you are under the cap and if you're not under the emissions cap you would then go either into the primary carbon market um, which is through auction at a regulatory agency where they auction their allowances or um, regulatory, the government will give free allowances uh, uh, through a free allocation program to um, its compliance entities. So you can obtain these credits in the primary market or you can take your business to the secondary market where it is very heated and heavily and actively traded on um, very legacy and uh, prominent uh, futures markets. Our exchanges are trading uh, carbon credits for all of these programs I just mentioned. So getting your getting access to uh, the regulatory pro uh, programs or credits in the regulatory uh, programs is quite uh, simple. Um, the infrastructure is sound and stable, um, and it is very liquid and traded with heavy volumes every single day. Now, can I get a carbon credit by being a good boy uh, <laughs> in the sense of being a company that, that really has a low carbon footprint? I know that uh, I did some of the early reporting on the California low carbon fuel standard, which is, you didn't mention that, but is essentially a carbon market designed to try to drive down the price of carbon. And I could earn carbon credits by behaving in certain ways, by uh, using fuels that had a low carbon footprint. So, so can these be earned or are they just the kind of things that you can buy off of some kind of ultimately what, what the, the government put into the market? 
Well, we're talking about two separate programs now. So the else the function of California's LCFS program is to reduce carbon intensity of fuels by a specific time. And the way you can do that is by blending more biofuels or less carbon intensive biofuels. And when you when you act in that way or you behave in that way and you're blending up lower carbon intensity fuels, you have the opportunity to create these high value LCFS credits. So yes, your behavior in that sense by actively participating in reducing the carbon footprint of the value chain through your blending actions is um, does make you eligible to receive these credits and then to go out and sell these credits to markets who maybe are having um, to some of the stakeholders who may be having some difficulty in reducing um, reducing their carbon intensity in their fuels. Now, for cap and trade program, there are um, there are assistance factors, if you will, or uh, free allocation of allowances to a certain degree to some of the stakeholders. There is an understanding in the regulatory agencies that it's going to take some time for um, for new technologies, uh, mechanisms, processes, and behaviors to be implemented so that um, emissions reduction goals under that program can be met. So in the meantime, to prevent carbon leakage, to prevent some of these um, producers from taking their business out of the state and just moving it elsewhere where they don't have to comply with carbon, the regulatory programs do uh, what's called um, an assistance factor or a free allocation. And so in this way, you are getting or in, the entity is getting some some free um, allowances uh, that will allow them a certain percentage of what they emit, um, whether that be from their static uh, refinery emissions or static cement production emissions or static power production emissions, or whether that be from the emissions that are covered from when you burn that fuel in the tank. We call those in-pipe, uh, tailpipe emissions. <laughs> so <clears throat> some, some of these free allocations do take place. Now, that's not a behavioral thing <clears throat> that is regularly reviewed um, with stakeholders there may need to be an adjustment to these assistive factors or allocation programs right because I remember one and one of the earlier cap and similar programs uh, was not a carbon program but I know in Europe it was either for a NOx you know nitrous oxide or sulfur dioxide NOx or SOx and they put out so many credits the government's released so many credits that the price just plummeted to you know close to zero and what that really did was it disincentivized disincentivized being a good boy. I'll use that term again. It just there just wasn't much value in, in in cutting your emissions that much. Sure, John, and and I agree with you. There were a lot of stumbling blocks in um, early programs. We saw that over with uh, Europe's carbon program and and what happened with uh, the price impact when they had um, abundance of um, allowances in that program, and that doesn't, as you say, incentivize. Uh, folks who actually move forward with reducing their emissions or compliance because the cost isn't high enough at that point. Um, <clears throat> they'd rather just pay it and move on. But, however, 
after the early stages, there have been, um, there are ways in which uh, regulators can kind of protect the supply and keep a more balanced uh, market. And they can do this through a number of reasons, um, a number of ways. One, we talked about the primary market and how the regulators release these um, allowances through auction. So they can choose to reduce the amount of allowances available at auction. They can choose to postpone their auction, or they can choose to put any excess allowances in a strategic revert, a strategic reserve. Um, so that therefore, if price ceilings are met or prices escalate beyond um, to an extreme that it's actually hurting um, economic activities or production, then they can then release these um, these allowances back into the reserve. Or again, as I said, they can always take a look at their um, free allocation program and they can determine, are we, you know, is it too much? Do we need to scale back? Or is it not enough at this point um, to, to help us to stay on target and also to not drive business away? Like you really don't want to uh, drive businesses out and, and just um, cause a leakage of carbon emissions elsewhere. So there has to be some kind of balance. And these, uh, these are some things that the agencies can do to kind of to keep that supply in check. <laughs> yeah, the, the market always prevails. It, it was interesting in the beginning, you mentioned, you know, various robust markets and they were sort of trading at different numbers. I remember being involved in an early discussion at Platt's um, about carbon and whether Platts would uh, get into the pricing of carbon. And one argument was this will never be a big deal because there'll be one global price of carbon. It'll be trading on some exchange. It'll be completely transparent. So what does a price reporting agency bring to the table? Obviously, your career shows that it brings quite a bit. So uh, how distinct are the carbon markets? Is, is, is a ton of carbon in Europe priced at the same as a ton of carbon in California, or are they vastly different? I love how you put that, John, and you're absolutely right. <laughs> These programs are um, uh, quite different in the way that they price. They are very robust, and they have proven to be effective. Cap-and-trade programs are effective at reducing emissions, and we can talk more about that later. But I have built a, a good chunk of my career on creating carbon pricing solutions, um, not just at the, the credit level, but also at the compliance level, and how to help transportation fuel companies evaluate their cost of complying with carbon markets, and then moving that value along down the chain, down the value chain and getting that to the end user, which is where behavioral changes are supposed to take place. Now, looking at pricing structures over in Europe, which is the largest carbon market in the world, currently EUAs, that's uh, European Union Allowances, that's their carbon credit, that's trading at $45, around $40, $45 a metric ton. That is a robust number off of what we saw many years ago when the market price had gotten dipped so low that it seemed like the program was almost broken. So right now it appears to be working quite well and the demand is so strong, uh, the prices are, it, it's the highest traded compliance market in the world currently. Now, looking over at California, which is the second largest carbon market in the world, it is currently trading around $18 a metric ton. That's right. one that's, that's a significant difference. I want to go back to the people I met with all those years ago and said, your whole idea that there's going to be one price of carbon is completely wrong. It's, 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 uh, as we, as we delve into the carbon market world, we can see just how, 
um, differing the mindsets are across governments, across countries, across across industries, and even across just our um, our 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 people on what really should be the cost of carbon. So it's it's a large range, and that's just compliance. <laughs> So a lot of you mentioned transportation companies and a lot of trucking companies and other transportation companies are feeling their way. They're putting out statements regarding sustainability, but, you know, they're not really sure what to do here. You know, there's the any kind of movement to decarbonize diesel is going to they're going to be the they're going to use it. There's nothing that they can do about it. There's just going to be the. Uh, the, the recipient of government regulation, I guess, the, the target of government regulation. So let's say you were going into a, a, a major trucking company that's put out a sustainability statement and that they want to be all in on the whole move to decarbonize the economy. What do you tell them? What 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 are the kind of services that you do? How can they use that without remember these companies are you know, they're not tiny, but compared to like big gigantic utilities, they're small and they're you know, they're always they work on fairly tight margins. What does the price of carbon do for them with their goals? Right. And that's a wonderful question, John. And I think that what I'm going to do is kind of evaluate this from strategies that I have already seen employed by different industries. And we can talk about that impacts in um, the terms of price. So <clears throat> we've got short term and we've got long term solutions. What we've seen from the energy industry is a robust call to move and, and to expedite the transition. Every day we are seeing calls from big major oil companies and also big uh, financial institutions on how many billions of dollars they're going to be investing in creating a carbon neutral economy. So. The trucking industry is not, you know, is no different. They are a major player. Transportation fuels is the largest uh, component of emissions uh, globally. So we do have, um, it, it is something that needs to be addressed. Now, in the short term, a short term solution and what many in the uh, marine fuel shipping, bunkering services and transportation fuel uh, delivery services, just typical LNG deliveries or even oil deliveries, um, you can uh, what we're seeing is the utilization of carbon offset credits bundling of these credits to create carbon neutrality for clients. That could be a strategy in um, fleet uh, and in transportation and in moving product. E-commerce was huge during the pandemic and our trucks were rolling like never before. <laughs> and so and that was good for business there, um, and but also we we saw a, a lot of emissions to that. So, one one solution could be to to see if there's a page that you can take out of the transportation fuel sector. Even uh, what we're seeing happening in shipping and maritime shipping, is there an opportunity to provide your clients with uh, carbon neutral delivery solutions? And can you do that by getting involved in the voluntary carbon market, purchasing offset? credits and letting your client know that you are going to show them proof that you are retiring credits on behalf of your vehicle mile travel in this journey. You can estimate your vehicle mile traveled, estimate your emissions during that time and discover how much offset credits. Now that's going to, um, when you're creating carbon neutral deliveries, that's going to um, result in a premium. But again, this is another cost that has to be considered 
in the value chain and how that gets to the end user. But in the absence of, uh, let's say, a, a transportation company being part of uh, some sort of, you know, you talked about the regional greenhouse gas group up in New England, not just New England, it's the whole Northeast. Uh, in the absence of a, of, a, of a carbon tax, in the absence of any kind of a mandate, in the absence of a company signing on to that kind of a pact, what is the value here? Is it just simply good governance? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, is it doing nice or is there another value? Oh, yes, John, there is a huge value. Um, it's great governance. Of course, it's great governance. But also, companies are responding right now to a hyper trend in investor strategies that is leaning and targeting holding carbon conscience portfolio, which means that they want to invest in companies that are taking the steps to reduce their carbon footprint, who are taking the climate challenge seriously. And if you just take a look last week, I saw two announcements from major banks who were hundreds of billions of dollars to be invested in these uh, carbon transition, uh, sorry, uh, energy transition and carbon neutral strategies. So investors are moving this ball along and it's creating boardrooms who are environmentally conscious, who are taking a look at their ESG targets and deciding what's going to be my strategy for reducing these emissions. Is it going to be something in technology? Am I going to shoot the ball in the long, long term? Am I going to seek investments in carbon capture and sequestration? Do I look at direct air capture methods, which by the way, can produce carbon credits out in uh, California's LCFS program. So if you're looking to scale up your investment there, that's about $200 a credit. So, I mean, and that will help some of, the, some of this investment along. So you can do it through technology. Maybe they're looking at renewable fuels. Maybe they're looking at alternate fuels such as synthetic fuels or um, um, renewable fuels. Um, or in the short term, what we're seeing is the uh, application of carbon offsetting right now at prices in the voluntary carbon market that are between, you can get them on average anywhere between a dollar, John, up to $20. So you can pick the range for these carbon credits that are issued by industry-renowned standards that have been accepted, widely accepted across the board that say this is a high-quality credit. Now, the prices in the voluntary carbon market are differentiate depending on what project you're purchasing from. Is that um, credit coming from a renewable energy product, uh, a renewable energy project? Is that credit coming from a nature-based solution such as a reforestation project or afforestation project, which might hold a little bit higher of a price tag because um, those type of projects tend to have additionality. They tend to have more benefits tied to them. But in that price range of a dollar to uh, $20, I mean, I've, I, in, I, in my pricing, I'm capping out at eight and a half, nine dollars for some very high quality Red Plus credits with, you know, additionality and benefits. And this is this is an area in the short term that um, that stakeholders can play in uh, and that they can effectively use to begin right now reducing their carbon footprints, why they are gearing up for those midterm and long term solutions that are more revolved around technology and, and um, differentiating of fuel usage and um, whether it's fleet renewal programs or what what have you electrification getting there. Right. Um, so. 
it is it's a short term strategy it can be applied and it's we're seeing it now uh, you asked me um uh, we were talking the other day and you asked me if um if if i'm seeing commodity or traditional commodity trading houses uh, engaged in this market Yes, John, absolutely. I think I saw last week multiple uh, trading houses. <laughs> we only got a minute or two. Let's follow up on that. Um, is there, okay, so the, the big commodity trading houses are getting into it. That's good. It provides liquidity, which provides transparency. Are there any exchanges? I, mean, I shouldn't say, are there any exchanges? I know it has been attempted on exchanges in the same way that I could go out now, right now, and look at the price of oil on an exchange. Uh, the price of copper. Can I go out right now and get a price of carbon on some exchange? You can go to one exchange and you can get a price of, well, in voluntary carbon. If we're talking about voluntary carbon, you can go to one exchange. There is one contract right now that has three standards or methodologies um, that are eligible to meet the Corsia. Uh, and what program. exchange is on? That's a CME. CME it's on CME, has, which CME is the same place where they trade oil and they trade diesel and trade lots of other things. There's one, but there, but that being said, that's 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 our traditional. But I, I will say this without plugging anyone's current business here and being very fair in this market, there are um, electronic uh, tokenized exchanges in Singapore where you can buy and sell um, <clears throat> buy and sell uh, project credits and you can that can be a nature-based solution. It could be a technology solution. It could be a Corsia eligible offset that has been approved by IKO's uh, regulatory board um, and that you know that you're getting a quality credit that way. There is another um, <clears throat> com uh, commodity trading platform here in the U.S. that uh, specializes in bilateral spot OTC trading of voluntary carbon markets, which is quite active right now. And I'm seeing from this one particular person new developments. Uh, um, I've seen two new developments in the past quarter. So, I mean, it's 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 heating up out there, John. But the good news is, is that trading solutions are coming to the market. And that's what's going to help improve liquidity, improve volume. But we really need to work on creating risk management solutions so that we can improve uh, investor confidence in this market. There's a, there's a lot of uncertainty around double counting and um, double claiming, and that makes a lot of people hesitant to want to get involved in the market. With that, we're going to have to bring this tremendous interview to a close. Our guest today has been Lisa Street. She is the Director of Global Carbon Pricing at Opus. She's been talking about carbon markets at the FreightWaves Net Zero Carbon Summit. Uh, I've been your host, John Kingston. I do want you to stick around. We've got a lot more discussion on this important market.